freedom. Freedom in my heart. What does it mean to you to have freedom? How often we here in this country take our freedoms for granted. What is freedom? How do we experience it? And what can we do to protect it? I want us to take a few minutes to open God's Word and do a little study on the meaning of freedom. I call this part of my sermon, The Word of Freedom. Truly, friends, our only freedom can be found in Jesus Christ. He is our Creator, and He is the one who has set us free. If you turn to that passage in John chapter 8, where we found our scripture reading, John chapter 8 and in verse verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Who is the truth? The truth is found in Jesus Christ. And the truth, as found in him and as written in his word, Jesus says, shall make you free. And in John eight thirty six, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. By contrast, Paul contrasts the freedom of the Christian with the entanglement, the bondage of those who do not know Christ, but instead try to work out their own salvation through their own works of human effort. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Friends, I want to submit to you today that the key to this freedom is found in the principle of Jesus Christ's forgiveness. Notice, though, how Jesus prayed in Mark chapter 6 and verse 12. When he taught his disciples to pray, he prayed, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It would seem then from this verse that the freedom that we ourselves experience in Christ is only proportional to the freedom that we grant to our fellow humankind. Let me say that again. The freedom that you and I can experience in the life of Jesus Christ is only proportional to the freedom that you and I are willing to grant to others in our relations with them. How did Jesus demonstrate this principle of freedom? How did he communicate this to his disciples? Well, we could go to many passages, but in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, turn with me there. Matthew chapter 20 and verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came literally and truly as the king of a new kingdom. He said so many times that the kingdom of God has come. But in doing so, Jesus never usurped the authority of the civil governments. At least not at, the, not at that time. In fact, so far from trying to raise up an insurrection, he taught his disciples in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Pilate, when he questioned Jesus at his trial, just before Jesus' crucifixion, asked Jesus directly, Are you a king? They say you are a king. Are you a king? Jesus answered in John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. He did not say he was not a king, but he says my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So far from lording it over his subjects, Jesus says only that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Unlike the nation of Israel, which was established as a theocracy directly under the government of God, Jesus did not come to establish the Christian church as a political or earthly form of government. In fact, Paul wrote this to the Christians living in Rome. In Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about emperors like Nero. He's talking about governors like Pilate who crucified Jesus. The powers that be are ordained of God. In verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues tribute, to whom tribute is due, custom, to whom custom, fear, to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. With these things in mind, I want us to take a few minutes and review the history of our own country. We have been talking about freedom of the heart, the word of freedom. Now I want us to move on to the nation of freedom. The fathers of our nation knew what it meant to live without freedom. For centuries, Christians who voiced their dissent with the state church of the old world were repressed and persecuted. 
Families fled their native lands. Pilgrims set out on a long and dangerous voyage across the Atlantic to find a new world. And these pilgrims had one object in view, to find a land where they could worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. Those who framed the constitution of this country embedded into the core of our existence the principle of the separation of church and state. We find there in that great document the words, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Our fathers were no stranger when it came to the close alliance of church and state. What would seem to be a mutually beneficial relationship inevitably worked to degrade the integrity of both. True, churches would be filled, but many who came to church came not for worship, but for political gain or to escape fines or imprisonment. True, the government offices would be filled with Christian nobles. Doesn't sound like a bad thing. But these Christians turned rulers would use their power to persecute and crush out any dissent, any disbelief, using the power of the state to control the consciences of their subjects. When the United States of America established a republic, a self-governing nation built on the principles of liberty, this nation flourished. Thinking men and women from every place on earth flocked to our shores, driven here by oppression and persecution in their native lands. Within a few short years, this nation rose from a fledgling group of colonies to a prominent power within the world and became a model of freedom, a model of self-government to the nations and the rest of the world. Of course, the history of freedom here in the United States has not been without its blight. The practice of slavery and the American Civil War, which brought it to its end, nearly obliterated the unity of this country. But we have come through, and since the abolition of slavery, this nation of freedom has shone brighter than ever before in a world of oppression and darkness. Abraham Lincoln penned these famous words, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. When we turn to the Bible, we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, a picture of two beasts. Now, I don't have time today in our short time together to get into all of the interpretation of Revelation. That could take us the rest of the day. So we won't, won't get into here, but let's talk about these two beasts very briefly. Revelation chapter 13. The first, there's a beast, a leopard-like beast, rising up out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns. Then, a few verses later, we see a second beast coming up out of the earth with two lamb-like horns. Now, many students of Bible prophecy 
understand this second beast of Revelation 13 to represent the United States of America. Just one of the factors that they point to is the fact that it rises up out of the earth. That would be an unpopulated area. The United States of America did not rise by conquest of other nations. Sure, there were the Cherokee, the the Indian uh, tribes and stuff here, but by and large, this was an uninhabited area. The United States rose up to greatness, not among the peopled nations of the old world of Europe, but in the relatively unpopulated wilderness of the new world. So anyhow, this second beast of Revelation chapter 13 rises up. Now, if it is true that this second beast of Revelation 13 points to the United States of America, then verse 12 of this chapter should give you pause. Especially considering the amount of freedom and peace we enjoy in our land. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 12 says, And he, that is that beast that rises up out of the earth, he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Causing the earth, causing those who dwell on the earth to worship. A beast, a political power, Compelling worship. The Bible is clear and unequivocal. In verses 16 and 17, the same beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. This is the proverbial mark of the beast. Now, everyone talks about the mark of the beast. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to talk about what is the mark of the beast, but suffice it to say that it has something very particular to do with worship. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their forehead, or in their right hand or in their forehead, that no man might buy or sell save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Friends, this is a direct violation of religious freedom. Now let me be clear, I'm not making this up. Seventh-day Adventists have been teaching this interpretation of Bible prophecy for over 150 years. We have taught for over 150 years that the United States of America one day will reverse, we will reverse our stance on religious freedom and begin, like it says there, to compel worship. Now, 150 years ago, when we taught this message, people laughed at us. What? How can you believe such a thing? America would never abrogate the principle of the separation of church and state. It's written in our Constitution. How could we ever reverse that? People laughed at us because of that. I tell you, friends, today, people still laugh at us, but for the complete opposite reason. What? You believe in the separation of church and state? What a silly idea. Can't you see we're supposed to be a Christian nation? The Constitution, that's not really what it meant. Maybe it needs to be updated. Friends, I'm telling you the truth. I am amazed. I should not be surprised to see the Bible prophecy fulfilled, should I? 
But I am amazed to see how quickly it is happening and right before our very eyes. We, the people of the United States of America, have done an about-face on our belief in the separation of church and state. Now, I'm not going to get into a political debate here, but I want to point out a few things that have happened just over the last few weeks that should be obvious to all of us. Like I say, I don't want to get into politics, but I just want to point out a a couple things. The executive order that our president has signed that temporarily, temporarily bans immigrants from seven predominantly Muslim countries, along with a lot of the rhetoric that has gone through the campaign and in the beginning days of the presidency, this is tantamount to establishing a religious test on anyone entering the country. Think about it. That it's, it's, it's very obvious, and it's not just me that's saying this. The, the news media, everyone is pointing this out. This is establishing a religious test on those entering this country. Politics aside, this is troubling to me. I want to ask, how quickly have we forgotten our history? Another, another point in the news, the president has promised to revoke the Johnson Amendment. Now, maybe you're not familiar with the Johnson Amendment. Basically, the Johnson Amendment is a law that prohibits the church from actively getting involved in endorsing a political candidate or getting involved in the campaign of political candidates. It's a law that, for whatever reason it it was established, it's done a very good job of drawing a line in the sand of separating what happens in church from what happens in politics. The president has promised in his campaigns to do away with this amendment, to allow churches once again to get involved in political campaigns, to do favors for political candidates. Now, it's without doubt that our current president was greatly helped by Christians, us as Christians, the evangelical Christian community, largely is responsible for putting our current president in office. That's no, there's no doubt about that. Now, while I feel it's important for all of us to engage in our civic duty, I'm concerned about the breaking down of the barriers between church and state. Now, now get, keep in mind here, I'm not, I'm not downing our president. I'm not rooting for a different candidate. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just pointing out some things that are developing in our, in our society. I'm concerned that this is one more barrier that's being broken down between church and state. The more the church becomes engaged in the political process, the more political leaders may feel indebted to the church, or vice versa. And it's setting a dangerous precedent on the encroachment of our religious liberties. Now, that's just a couple examples. We could spend the rest of the day talking about different developments that we've seen in this nation, how our liberties are being eroded from both sides, I might add. I'm picking on one side, but from both sides, and we've seen it a lot from the other side of of the political spectrum, but I'm just pointing out some recent things. I'll save the the rest of that discussion for another time. Let me point this out. A very simple principle. Civil governments, by nature, have to use force to coerce their subjects to abide by the rule of law. That's why we have 
fines. That's why we have prisons. That's why we have various things, okay? The use of force. The principles of Christ's government, as we have seen, are antithetical to the use of force. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. They cannot go together. I love the song written by Samuel Smith. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside let freedom ring. Our fathers God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. How can we make this practical? What can we do to ensure that we and our families, our children, can continue to enjoy freedom of conscience in this land of freedom? There are a few things we can do. We can write our senators and representatives. We can explain our concerns to them. We still have the freedom, thank God, thankfully, to engage in civic life. And I encourage you to get involved. Talk to people in your local government, state government, even federal officials. Make a difference. Become involved and you never know where the Lord might lead. Daniel of old became prime minister of Babylon. And today, for the first time in history, a Seventh-day Adventist is serving on the cabinet of the President of the United States. I want to point out another thing, and Christina mentioned this. You have an insert in your bulletins. There's a magazine printed by the Seventh-day Adventist Church called Liberty Magazine. We, as a church, send this to our local, state, and national officials and government civic leaders, community leaders. And at the end of our service today, we're going to be taking up a collection to help cover the cost of sending this to leaders right here in Macquarie County. I encourage you to read this, get a subscription for yourself, and sponsor subscriptions for people in your own community so that our leaders can become aware. This is not about promoting doctrine or teachings of our of our church this is simply about promoting religious freedom whether that's religious freedom for muslims or for hindus or for christians or for or for whoever this is this is what this is about liberty magazine i encourage you to help to sponsor a, a subscription to to liberty magazine now we've heard the word of freedom we've discussed our place, and our role here in this nation of freedom. But last but not least, I want to leave you with some thoughts on the principles of the life of freedom. There is more that we can do. There's something that every one of us can do, and we must do, in order to protect the freedom that we all enjoy. In fact, if you do this, I can guarantee that you will have freedom for the rest of your life. Now, that's hard, to, that's hard to do. But I can guarantee that you'll have freedom for the rest of your life. You know, civic activity may not be your thing. Maybe you don't want to put touch politics with a 10-foot pole. 
I don't blame you, quite honestly. But I urge you, I implore you to study, to live a life of freedom. If you do this one thing, no one will ever be able to take your freedom away. What do I mean by this? It goes right back to where we started. To the heart of what it means to have freedom in Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, and verses thir- verse 31. If you continue in my word, Jesus says, Then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, verse 36, you shall be free indeed. Continuing in God's word, getting to know Jesus, that will make you free. Jesus gives us freedom. And when we experience true freedom in him, nothing can take it away. John chapter 15, verses 17 through 19 These things I command you, that ye love one another. And if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. When the world sees the freedom that Christ has to offer, When they see that freedom, but they reject it, they will reject us. Yes, we will suffer persecution. Persecution is inevitable for the Christian. But Jesus says in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How does this affect with the way that we relate to other people? What does it mean to love one another as Jesus commanded us? Friend, I want to submit to you today that love is freedom. Love is letting go. When God made the angels, he also made an angel named Lucifer. In his love, he did not keep his angels tied in so tightly that they could not move. He set his beings free, free to choose on their own. And in doing so, he took a risk. He took a risk that one day one of those would rebel against him. And Lucifer did. Lucifer chose to rebel in heaven. He chose to reject God. Then when God made Adam and Eve on this earth, he gave Adam and Eve the same choice. Adam and Eve, too, also chose to rebel against God. Oh, I can only imagine how much God wanted to just put out his hand and stop Eve from reaching up and taking the fruit. God could see all of the suffering and pain that would be the result, but he didn't. He allowed her to choose because it was the only way he could ever allow her or any of his beings to love. The only way to have love is when you have the choice. So you and I can show God's love by demonstrating this principle of freedom in our day-to-day relationships. The gospel teaches me that when I sit down next to a Muslim, 
I can count him or her as a brother or a sister. I can love that person. I can value his opinions and beliefs, even when I disagree with them. I can love the individual as a person whether or not they ever accept Jesus Christ. Of course, as a Christian, as I have opportunity, I will want to share my faith with him. But just as equally, I will want to be interested in hearing his own unique experiences in life so that I can better relate to his experience. Think about this. We could spend the next hour just on this subject right here. I have to say, the Lord is still teaching me a lot in this area myself. I'm so quick to judge, so quick to condemn someone else, so quick to think that I'm better or I know more than somebody else. Think about this the next time you're tempted to speak a harsh or critical word. Do I love the person? Do I love that person enough? Do I love that person just as Christ loves them? Do I love him or her enough to let them make a wrong choice, even if I have to bear the consequences of the choice that they have made? Jesus loved you and me enough that he saved us while we murdered him. The principle of freedom can apply anywhere. We come to church, we sit next to our brothers and our sisters here in the pew. But do we all believe exactly the same way? Do we all read this Bible exactly the same? How quick are we to condemn or correct our brothers and sisters for something they may have done or said? Here, let me set you straight. Here's another book too. You know, I think in our homes and in our families, we have a lot of work to do in learning this principle of freedom. We can come to church and put on a good face, but the doors of our homes can cover so many abuses. So many loving Christian women, yes, and men too, are being abused by Christian family members. Husbands and wives, parents and children, Abuse doesn't have to be physical abuse. It doesn't have to be sexual abuse, although too often it is. But even more common are the less visible forms of abuse. Verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and yes, even spiritual abuse. Did you know there's such a thing as spiritual abuse? Have you heard of that before? If you use the word of God, to try and compel another person. That is spiritual abuse. God's word is never about force. He doesn't push you. He draws you. That's what we've been talking about today. It doesn't have to be a powerful state church entity to bring on persecution. It happens every day in homes right around this country. It doesn't have to be forcing a person to go against their conscience. I think probably the most terrible form of spiritual abuse happens when a person, an individual, reprograms the conscience of another person so that instead of that person relating directly to God, the person becomes a puppet of another person.
to the point that one individual can exercise almost complete and unequivocal control over the person who is their subject. Probably the most extreme example of this is the Jonestown Massacre, when this psychopath, Jim Jones, convinced 900 of his followers to commit suicide. Now that's a pretty extreme example, and you wonder, how can that ever happen? Friends, it happens right here today, and it happens in Christian homes. It, I dare say it happens in Seventh-day Adventist Christian homes. It doesn't have to go to the extreme of drinking the poison Kool-Aid to qualify as spiritual abuse. Anytime a person uses religion as a way to control, to manipulate another person, that is spiritual abuse. And it leaves horrible scars. As bad or worse than any kind of abuse. But friends, today I'm not, I'm not here today to talk about abuse. We're here today to talk about freedom. Friends, the gospel of Christ breaks down the bonds of spiritual and emotional abuse. You can take someone that's been tied and chained in a relationship for years, and when the gospel of Christ dawns upon their mind, dawns upon my mind, and I realize that I can relate directly to God, I don't have to go through an earthly person I don't have to allow this other person to have control over my life, to, u- to usurp this pathway that God has, u- has ordained for His Holy Spirit to communicate with us. When I realize the freedom that Christ offers, it revolutionizes my life. The gospel frees us. The gospel gives us an identity that is all our own. And then it sets us apart. It points us to Jesus Christ. Not compelling, not, not, not pushing, but it points us to Jesus Christ who stands waiting for us to volunteer, for us to open the door of our hearts to welcome him in. Friend, as we sit here, where do you fall in this picture? Have you been hurt? Have you even perhaps been abused? Have you found yourself even perhaps perpetuating this cycle of hurt and abuse? Yes, we have been hurt. Many of us badly. You know, we can be hurt the worst by those who are closest to us. A spouse, a parent, a child, a trusted friend. Jesus, friends, Jesus came to this world to give us a second chance and we murdered him. In his dying words on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. In dying at our hands, he forgave us. And as he forgave, he taught us also to forgive. For us who have been hurt and abused, can we forgive? Can we give our brothers and sisters the freedom to love again? Friends, that's the beautiful thing about freedom. Freedom is the ability to turn around once again, to return to God and experience the rebirth and the new life that he has to offer. Oh, loving Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the freedom that you have given us, for that offer of freedom that comes only in Jesus Christ. Lord, today we stand here and accept 
that offer of freedom. Lord, fill our lives. Break the chains of sin that have bound us. And as we are forgiven, may we also forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lord, I pray also for this nation that we may continue to experience the freedom that this nation was built on for as long as you see fit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.